Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Northridge Church. We're so glad that you're with us this morning and that maybe you learned a couple things during that video. Um, but hey, all of our campuses, online, no matter where you are, we're just thrilled to be together this weekend. Of course, I always have a special place in my heart for the Hen fam. Shouting out to you guys right now. Thanks for joining us this morning, everybody. Uh, but it's Labor Day weekend, right? So in some level, fall is in full swing right now, okay? We got pumpkin spice lattes rolling. People are already pulling out those Ugg boots. Like, it's getting crazy in Rochester. And I have no data to back this up, but I'm fairly certain that a third of Starbucks' annual revenue is just from the PSL in, like, September, October, no November, every year. This thing goes crazy. And I actually... I had a really weird experience at Starbucks the other day, and the first part of my weird experience is that I was at Starbucks at all, okay? I'm a Dunkin' guy, so sometimes I will condescend and enter into Starbucks and see if there's anything drinkable there. But um, I ran into a friend there, and she was telling me about how she was actually there doing her online training to begin working at Starbucks. So we're talking about that, and she's kind of to the side, so like, hey, and um, by the way, I I'm getting this job because they've got really good benefits, but like, I don't like coffee. I was like, what? Why, why are you going to spend most of your waking hours as an adult creating a beverage for people that you don't even like? Like, what is going on? I was like, well, at least you can make good recommendations on tea for people. She's like, uh, oh, no, no I, I don't drink tea either. Okay, hold on. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're about to work at Starbucks and you don't like coffee or tea? My mind is blown. And so I asked her, and she's like, how could this have possibly happened? She said something that blew my mind. She said in multiple rounds of interviews, they had never asked her whether she liked coffee or tea. That's unbelievable, right? And so I was like, what, what's going on here? Did you not tell them? Like you, you were like hiding this fact from them? And she was like, yeah, well, I wanted to get the job. And I was like... This is ridiculous. This is going to last like one shift until someone asks you what a recommendation for your favorite kind of latte. And you're going to be like, uh, well, and since I'm a good friend, I like didn't go to the manager and tell him right away. I just let her sit on her throne of lies and continue <laughs> this ridiculousness. I just couldn't believe it. <clears throat> but like, how long do you think she's going to be able to hide this fact that she's not going to be drinking any of the things that this establishment produces, right? Like that can't last very long. But anyway, in my head, that should be the first question on the application of Starbucks. What's your favorite drink? It's not on there, it would seem. You can get hired at Starbucks and not like coffee. It's crazy. And it kind of got me thinking, like, are there other things like this? Like, for instance, could you work at Apple and not own an iPhone? Like, is that possible? I, I don't know. Could you work at Chick-fil-A and think that the Popeye sandwich is better? Right? I, I, I hope not. I hope not. But there are, there, are there things in my mind that are so core to a company that if you, that you aren't into that, you're kind of an imposter, like you're faking it, which because I'm weird kind of got me th thinking a little bit about my faith in the same way. And I know that's kind of out of left field, but like, are there things about Christianity that if I don't buy into them, like this whole thing's a charade, like if I don't believe this particular thing, I'm like my friend just plowing through another shift, hoping no one asks for a drink recommendation at the drive-thru. Are there things so core that if I get them wrong, the rest of what I'm doing in faith is worthless? And that's a tough question. But I think the answer is yes. There absolutely are. There are a few things that are completely core to being a follower of Jesus. So core, in fact, that if you're not down with them, it's kind of a deal breaker. 
And this final section of the letter of 1 John is all about one of those things. And if you haven't been with us, this is the last week of a walkthrough of some of the highlights of a first century letter called 1 John. It was written by one of Jesus' closest friends, and he's writing this letter to some of his friends about what it looks like to follow Jesus in their day and age. And it's got some awesome lessons for us. We get to kind of sit back from a distance and observe this conversation between friends and see what there is to learn from, from it. Uh, But in this chapter, the final section, chapter five, it's all about something so important that it's the deciding factor in John's mind about whether or not you're in, whatever that means. So in fact, if you want to go ahead, jump into John chapter, first John chapter five, that's on page 988. If you're using one of our Bibles or get there, however you get there, uh, we'd love for you to follow along. We'll be in that chapter all morning. So first John five and the deciding factor for John that he outlines is not going to be whether or not you like coffee. Although, if you were to watch our staff drink coffee, you would think that that was a requirement, but it's not. This, was, this is the deciding factor, and the deciding factor in John's mind is your view of Jesus, who he was, what he was capable of, and what he claimed to be all about. So let's check it out. What do you think that John believes that you needed to believe about Jesus if you were going to be part of the family of God? <clears throat> And I just want to say, if you're here today and you don't claim in any way to be following Jesus, I first of all just want to applaud you for being here because church on a holiday weekend, like, well done, good sir. That is impressive. Um, But I just want you to know, this is a great week for you to be here because you're going to get a picture of what we believe about Jesus here at Northridge. So it's a great week to check it out. If you consider yourself part of the church family here, you are a follower of Christ, then I hope that this message kind of causes you to lean in and sit up straight because John has some strong words to say and we need to make sure that we all understand what it is he's trying to communicate. So let's jump in. We're actually gonna start in 1 John 5 verse 11 um, and this is, I believe, kind of his big idea for the chapter. So here's what he said in verse verse 11. Um, uh, Right toward the end of it, it says, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So here's what he says. He says, God has given us a really big benefit, eternal life, but that benefit comes contingent on a requirement and that is that the life comes through his son. Eternal life comes delivered to us via Jesus. Okay, so he continues on. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So there it is, the requirement, you have to have the son to get the benefit of having life. And then the opposite, if you don't meet the requirement, then you don't get the benefit. So are we tracking with this? This is his big idea in this. If you, you must have the son if you're going to have eternal life. That's kind of the whole point he's trying to make, which is like, okay, cool, but what does this have to do with the opening question about what's core to believing about Christianity? What, do we, what must we believe? Well, that is ultimately what this whole thing is describing. A proper view of Jesus is essential. It's core to being a Christian. And John unloads some packed theology, some packed teaching on what we must believe about Jesus in this chapter. But what you're gonna notice on your program notes if you're following along or in the app, you're gonna see a bunch of definitions. And that's because John teaches a lot of truth in just a few words. Words that in his original context would have meant a lot to people, so he didn't feel the need to explain them, but for us, they're easy to miss. So we're gonna allow John to do the teaching by taking his simple sentences and trying to define all the words that are very rich and see what we can learn from that. 
Once you understand the words, I think that you'll be able to mine all that he means about Jesus. So we're going to be doing a little bit of what theologians and nerds call Christology. Christology. Now, doesn't that sound boring on Labor Day weekend? Christology is just a word that means the study of Jesus the Christ. It's the study of Jesus the Christ. And you can write that down in your notes. Christology, ology is the study of, so the study of the Christ. And it's a whole branch of theology that's extremely rich. And so my goal today is just to outline three specific truths about Jesus that he gives, John gives in this chapter, and he says that they are core to having eternal life. So let's jump in. We're going to get right at the beginning of the chapter. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Let's see what it says. It says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So we're rolling already with some facts about Jesus. If you're reading carefully, you will notice that he has already given us something that we must believe about Jesus. He's shaping our Christology with this one single sentence at the start of the chapter, and we'll break it down. He says, everyone who believes that what? Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's saying that in order to be part of the family of God, we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But the reason that that sounds kind of confusing to us is because we don't normally say the Christ. We'd normally say like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we just kind of tack Christ on the end of Jesus as if it were his last name. Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ is a title. It's a title, and it's an important one. It's one that John's original audience would have immediately understood was both very controversial and very significant, very important. So what does Christ mean? What what, what does that mean? Here's the definition. Christ just means the anointed one, the Messiah, or the promised one. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, or the promised one. And this idea goes way back to a Jewish idea of the Messiah, who was promised to come, and he was going to deliver the people of Israel from all sin and oppression. And the reason they said the anointed one is that anointing was just a way to indicate that someone had received a commission or like an important job and they were being charged with it. Like uh, if you think about someone being like knighted in in old school medieval world, uh, you know, they're like kneeling on the ground in front of the king and the king takes a sword and like taps both shoulders and says like knight of the realm, defender of the soil or whatever. Like that moment That's kind of what anointing was in their context. They poured oil or anointed their head with oil, indicating their importance. Every king would have been anointed with oil. And so the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. And when Hebrew was translated to Greek, Greek word for anointed one is Christ. Okay, so Messiah and Christ are the same word, just in two different languages. And you're like, okay, super fun history lesson there. But like, what does that have to do, theologically speaking, with what we're talking about? Well, it's the first part of a proper view of Jesus that John's trying to communicate. A proper view of Jesus, according to John, is that we must believe that Jesus can rescue. When he's saying that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, what he's saying is that we have to believe that Jesus can rescue. The Messiah was the promised rescuer for the people of God. You could substitute that Jesus can forgive or Jesus can save. When John said that they needed to believe that he was the Christ, it would have been immediately obvious to the readers he was making a significant claim about the importance and the power and the capacity of Jesus. He wasn't saying, like, you need to believe Jesus existed. No, everyone knew he existed. He had done his thing, like, on this planet, like, only 50 years before this book was written. They all knew he was real. 
John was telling them, you need to believe his world-changing claim that he was the Messiah, that he was sent by God to forgive. So the phrase, Jesus Christ, is not, is not a name, it's a theological claim. And if you're gonna have a proper view of Jesus according to John, you've got to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, who had the power to forgive sins and to rescue his people, to save them from an eternity apart from God. Jesus can rescue. So we're only one verse in to 1 John 5, and we've already gotten some deep uh, Christology here. Let's keep going. Let's see what we can find. Verses two through four are gonna feel really repetitive. If you've been around for this series, John says a lot of the same things over and over about how we have to love God and obey him. So here's what he says in 1 John 5, two through four. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. It sounds like a broken record. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands aren't burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. The point of these verses is that if you are born of God, you will obey God. If, as a child of God, ultimately, when you're obeying him, he's saying that you have overcome the world. And that sounds cool. I mean, I like being an overcomer, but what is the world? Again, like, why are we overcoming? How is it that faith brings about this overcoming? What's he talking about? Well, remember the term world. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The world in John's writing just means everything that is anti-God. He's just talking about everything in our world that's anti-God. But this doesn't mean that we're going to become like world leaders if we obey Jesus. Like we're suddenly going to be promoted to be partnering of the G7, like if we, if we follow him. That's not what this means. It just means we will overcome the world's system by faith in Jesus. John, he actually says it again, this overcoming idea, and he ties it to important Christology. First John 5, 5, he continues saying, who is it that overcomes the world? Who, who gets that benefit? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So what, what is it that we're supposed to believe about Jesus in the verse? We have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what does that mean? Again, that's not, it's not, he doesn't really explain it. Why is that important? It's a term that would have meant a lot to the original context, but to us it just sort of sounds like vaguely spiritual, like sure, he's the Son of God. Let's break it down a bit, because I don't think we can miss this. It's important. When we think of Son of God, we might think of something like, uh, he's kind of like the JV God a little bit. Like there's God and then there's like his kid who's kind of like the smaller immature version that we like but like he's not quite as cool. It's like there's Mufasa and he's like the man. But then there's Simba and like, you know, he's coming along. Like we, we like him but he's just a kid. But, but that's not what he's claiming here as being the son of God. It was a claim to something much more significant. It was at least, if nothing else, a slap in the face to the Roman civilization at the time. Whoever the Caesar was, the king was at the time, he would have claimed to be a son of the gods. And as such, he would have demanded that you worship him. So right off the bat, this would have looked like a political challenge because Jesus would have been claiming that he needed to be worshiped as well. Because being the son of God was not like an inferior position. It was a claim of being in an exalted status, a claim of actually being divine. So John uses son of God to highlight how exalted and unique and one of a kind Jesus actually was. In fact, he references him this way in John's own writing when he's recounting the life of Jesus. In 1 John 3.16, I mean, sorry, John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only 
son. Maybe you're used to hearing only begotten son if you've read other translations. That's highlighting how unique Jesus is, how important he is. And in the same book earlier, John wrote that we have seen his glory. That's Jesus's, the glory of the one and only son. That's specific and unique son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This one and, on, one and only language is a term that John loved to use describing Jesus. It's not saying you're JV. It's saying he, you are the son of God, that you are the one and only completely unique divine son. Distinct from the father in person, there's a difference, father, son, but they're united with the father in his deity. In fact, John records Jesus making a stunning claim in 1 John 10 verse 30. This was a claim to sonship, but also not similar to the Father's deity, not similar to the Father's deity, but exactly the same as the Father's deity in glory. First, I mean, John 10, 30 says this, I and the Father are one. That's a quote from Jesus. I and the Father are one. Wow, he's saying they are one. The traits of the Father are the traits of the Son. Equal divinity, equal power, equal in their eternal natures, co-equal in everything that it means to be God. Jesus was the son of God and all of these implications in using the term son of God would have been immediately obvious as John's readers were engaging with his letter here. And if you're wondering if Jesus's original audience would have followed his logic in claiming to be one with the father, let's look at how they responded. John 10:30, he claims to be one with the father. Look at how his audience responds in John 10:31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. So they believed so clearly that he was claiming to be God that they were gonna kill him for his blasphemy. This was not ambiguous. It wasn't like, I don't know what he really means by this. When he says in 1 John 5 that we must believe that whoever, whoever overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God, he was making a very precise theological claim that would have been understandable to his readers. And so the second point in our proper view of Jesus that we have to come to understand if we're gonna track with John's whole point is that Jesus is God. A proper view of Jesus requires us to believe, and you can write that down in your notes, that Jesus is God. That's the second point. Jesus isn't just the Messiah. He's the maker of the universe. He's the God who demands our worship. Jesus is God. And so far, we've kind of made it through verse five, and I hope you feel like you're already getting a solid introduction to Christology, so we just want to keep on rolling. We've got one more point we need to make. And John recognizes in the next few verses that his audience might be a little skeptical about whether or not these claims that are huge are actually legit. So he spends verses six through 10 just trying to convince them that there are witnesses that testify to the validity of Jesus' claims. He mentions some kind of ordinary things that... you know, validate Jesus, but he also gives some divine validation for the testimony of God himself. God himself, he says, is testifying for Jesus. And we're gonna discuss those verses in particular in the podcast a little more this week. If you wanna get more info about that on your connections card, you can. If you've been tracking, you can just keep listening. But God, John almost makes it seem like God is on the witness stand in the courtroom and he's testifying to the validity of Jesus. So what is it that God himself says about his son? And he says it in 1 John 5, 11. We already read this verse. It says this, and this is the testimony. This is God's view of Jesus. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. This is what God testifies in court about his son, that eternal life is available, but only through him. 
And then he continues testifying in the next verse, 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If this is the testimony of God in heaven, it's pretty unambiguous. You have got to have the Son of God if you're looking for eternal life. And then verse 13 just nails it down even further. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. Belief in God's son, Jesus, is important. In fact, it's so important, it gives us our last view of a proper view of Christ. We must believe in Jesus, and we have to understand that Jesus is exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. In verse 12, John literally breaks the entire human race into two categories, those who have the son, who believe his claims and believe in him, they have eternal life. And then those who don't have the son of God and thus don't have eternal life. Just two categories. And in a world like ours that so values a marketplace of ideas and subjectivity and inclusiveness, John has no room for any of that when it comes to your view of Jesus. And man, I want to be clear. I'm all about being inclusive. I want to love people where they are. I don't want to be overly judgmental about our views. But when it comes to how a person is made right with God and spends their eternity with him, John is completely clear. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is exclusive. It's not Jesus minus this or that problematic thing that Jesus said along the way. It's all of Jesus or no eternal life. And it's possible that this is Jesus' least popular feature. Because <laughs> most people like Jesus, at least conceptually, right? I mean, he's all about love and kindness and acceptance of the outcast. And, and that's, that's true. That's all true. It's radical and powerful and very true of Jesus. But Jesus himself and all of his closest followers didn't take that acceptance and that inclusivity as a clue to become unclear about what mattered most. And that is that Jesus is the only way. His path is the only path to life with God. Jesus is exclusive. So at this point, we've put together three points about our view of Jesus that 1 John 5 has outlined. um, That Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus is exclusive. So this is what John thought we needed to believe, but how does this letter end? Like, where does John close us out? In in verse 14 through 18, he kind of like goes off, has a little bit of a sidebar, and that's another section we're going to talk about in the podcast this week. If you read it, you're going to find some interesting things in those verses, 14 through 18. But then he jumps back in in verse 19 with this awesome concluding sentence. It really encapsulates everything he's been teaching in this chapter. So let's, let's read it through again with sort of our new definitions in mind. 1 John 5, 19 through 20. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God, remember that means he is God, has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, the true and only exclusive God. And we are in him, Jesus, who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. That means Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the one who can save, he is the true God and the eternal life. Wow. There is a lot packed in those verses. And it is a great summary of the chapter as a whole. But then, there's this final verse, which kind of feels like a big PS. It's like an afterthought, like kind of tacked onto the end there. And he says this in 1 John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. 
And it's kind of like, what? <laughs> where, where did this come from? You've had all these repeated themes throughout this letter about like, you have to love others and you have to you know, display the vital signs of obeying God and having a family resemblance and Nate walked through all these traits of love that we have to exemplify and all these things about denying Gnosticism. It's all these themes woven throughout this letter and then he's hammering home in the final chapter the importance of a right view of Jesus and then he just randomly sticks a little note about idolatry on the end of the letter. Like, what's, what's going on? Did he run out of ink? Like, nah, I'm done. You can send it. Like, wh what's going on? That's your mic drop moment? Somebody, like, who, who wrote the Transformers movies? Can I, can I, like, hook up with John and, like, give this guy an ending with, like, a battle scene or, like, some explosions or something? Like, this is a little lackluster. But I'm actually convinced that this verse would have packed a punch to the original audience. And let me explain it. And I think if I do, it might have something to say to us as well. Let's start off by defining what we mean by idolatry. You, first of all, the kind of the first thing we have to know is there's kind of like your standard garden variety idolatry. And honestly, this is what most people, Christian otherwise in our world today, this is what they think of when they think of idolatry. And I would think just define this as like a pagan idol. A pagan idol is just a statue or an effigy which is worshipped as a deity. Okay, it's a statue or an effigy worshipped as a deity. That sort of rhymes, I didn't intend that. Okay, um, this was a form of idolatry that John was urging his friends to avoid. This would have been their context. Pagan idolatry, which is just, you know, worshiping little images, precious metals, whatever. This would have been hugely common and hugely influential in first century Roman culture. Everybody, everybody worshiped idols. It was more Roman to worship idols than it is American to eat apple pie, okay? This was integral to their culture. So that's the basic idea when he's writing this verse that he would have been telling them to avoid. But what's wrong with idols, right? Like, what's the big deal? Like, in general, what's wrong with bowing down to a little wooden thing? Like, what's the deal? Well, the problem isn't what you're bowing down to. The problem is what's happening in your heart. Heart idolatry is the actual problem with pagan idolatry. And what is heart idolatry or a heart idol? A heart idol is anything that takes the place of God. A heart idol is anything that takes the place of God. So when God condemns idolatry, and if, if you engage with the Bible, you'll see he does that a lot. What he's really condemning is just anything that would take his place. He is totally committed to ensuring that the people who follow him put him first, that they have nothing higher in their lives than him alone. So he commands them, he urges them to avoid idol worship. Don't place any gods before me. And here's why I think that this line would have packed a punch in this context. As this audience was listening to this letter being read to them and hearing all of these truths about Jesus that they're hearing and immediately understanding, there would have been a part of their heart that would have been pushing back and wondering, is this all real? Is this worth it? I mean, you've got that part of your heart too, right? <laughs> I know I do. The part is always pulling you away from what God wants in your life. Well, that part of their heart would have been trying to distract them or tempt them to return to the way of life that they knew. What was their way of life? Well, it wasn't atheism. It wasn't Buddhism. It wasn't living the American dream. It wasn't any temptation that we would have been at all able to readily identify with. It would have been a return to pagan idolatry. That was their temptation. But why was that tempting for them? Well, it's because what everyone was doing around them. This is what everyone around them thought was right. They thought it was reasonable. They thought it was best. They even thought it was patriotic. You gotta worship idols. And the draw wasn't to materialism or something that we're drawn to today. Their 
what was true of them is it was just straight up pagan idolatry. That's what they were drawn to. And so John gives all this important and dense teaching about who Jesus is and why he's important. And John knew that his family, his friends would have needed a stern reminder to not abandon the truth about the real God of the universe for the lie of pagan idolatry. So he's basically saying like, yo, look, guys, look at me. I know what you want to do. Don't do it. Don't be fooled. Don't let yourself drift into the cultural trend that seems easiest. I know it's going to gain you credibility and influence, but stick with Jesus. Resist idolatry. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And for us, that kind of seems like a silly temptation. (laughs) Like, why would that even be attractive? Why do we have to say that at all, much less make it like your final point in this letter? And I think that's a valid question, but it comes ultimately from us missing the blind spots that we have. Because we all have idolatry in the first century. We all have idolatry, but we tend to leave it in the first century. We don't see a lot of people bowing down to golden statues, so we think, okay, that's not really a temptation. And I just have to say, I think it absolutely is our temptation today, idolatry. And John, thousands of years later, is smacking us right in the face with this final sentence. Because I think that we have to understand this concept about idolatry generically. Idolatry is ultimately just the thing that is your greatest competition to seeing Jesus rightly and living accordingly. Idolatry is actually just the thing in your life that is your greatest competition to seeing Jesus rightly and living accordingly. So yeah, for these first century Roman believers, it was a legit temptation to head down the street with all their friends and coworkers to the temple of Artemis and hit up a sacrifice real quick. That would have been a legit temptation. And that might sound dumb to us, but I think that there is plenty in our hearts that is easily competing with our ability to see Jesus rightly and live according to his commands. I mean, seriously, tell me, tell me that your obsession with getting your house just right doesn't sometimes compete with your ability to use your finances in a way that pleases God. John would say, hey, children, keep yourself from idols. Tell me, your fixation on sex doesn't sometimes make you wanna bend the rules that God has given us in order to feel good. Tell me, John would say, dear children, stay away from idols. Tell me that your desire to see your kids succeed academically and athletically doesn't sometimes distract you from the goal of encouraging them spiritually. John would say, dear children, stay away from idols. And tell me that your desire to look academically credible or inclusive in our world doesn't sometimes make you want to abandon the morals or your worldview sometimes. John would say, dear children, stay away from idols. Tell me that your need for me time doesn't sometimes distract you or crowd out the time that you could have to serve the body of Christ. John is saying, dear children, stay away from idols. And tell me if your desire to chase your hobbies doesn't sometimes lead you to a lack of leadership and passivity in your family family environments, John would say, dear children, stay away from idols. We all have them. They are constantly pulling us away from seeing Jesus for who he is and living the life that he has called us to live. So don't judge these first century Christians. I promise they would find your struggles just as ridiculous. And what John was really saying to his friends was idols are fake. Guys, they're dead. They're worthless. They're powerless. And if you allow the current of your culture to suck you down the road of idolatry, you will find yourself all in on a forgery. You will find that you have put all of your faith into a fake, and you will find that you have placed all of your hope into a cheap imitation. 
And so what he did was he clearly outlined what he thought our view of Jesus should be. And then he begged his family, don't, of, just don't buy into the lies. Don't accept an imitation. And in essence, what he's saying when it comes to Jesus is family, look, accept no substitutes. Accept no substitutes. Don't take the generic. Don't take the knockoff. Don't accept anything less than a fully human, fully divine Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth, who was the son of God and who offers to you eternal life. Don't accept anything less. And if you're here today and you've bought the lie of a fake and it doesn't, for you, it doesn't look like pagan idolatry. It doesn't look like statues or idols, but it looks like lies that the more that you engage in them, the less satisfied you feel. Let us introduce you to the real thing. Talk to the person who brought you. One of our pastors will be down front. At any of our campuses, we have people ready and available to talk to you so that you can take this step. Be introduced to the real thing. Or if you're here today and you claim to be following Christ and you've bought into the real thing, but you've found yourself distracted, believing lies along the way that are ultimately distracting you from the truth, you're accepting a substitute, then today is your chance. Today is your chance to deny those lies, to put away those idols and return to worshiping, to serving and to seeing rightly the king of the universe. His name is Jesus and he is waiting to invite you back home. Let's pray. God, we love you and we're thankful for the fact that we don't have to accept a substitute. <laughs> You've given us the real thing. You've given us life that lasts eternally, life that matters now. And I pray that we would see your son correctly. Pray that we would obey the commands that you've given us all by the power of the gospel that you made clear through your son. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.